emulate the same track. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign God who always keeps his promises. We praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us and your steadfast love. And we do pray now as we consider your word that you would grant us understanding, that we might know why this word was written, what you are saying to us through this word this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would so strengthen our faith in you, that we would persevere trusting in your promises uh, through whatever situation we face and wherever you may take us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not how you begin, it's how you end that counts. It's not how you begin, it's how you end that counts. I wonder if you've heard that proverb before. It's true in many parts of life, isn't it? Uh, if you run a marathon, there's no point in a sprinting for the first half an hour, well, you can even do that, um, and then collapse halfway. Uh, or if you get married, there's no point loving your wife for the first 10 years and uh, only to be unfaithful in the end. Or if you're trying to lose weight, like I am, right? there's no point di dieting for the first week and then binge eating in the second. Uh, it's not how you begin that matters, it's how you end that counts. And it's the same in the Christian life as well. We must make sure that we not only begin the Christian life well, but we end it well as well. And we'll only be able to finish it well if we're sure that God can be trusted to keep his promises, that God will be faithful all the way to the end, that his word to us will prove true no matter where he takes us, no matter what situation he puts us in. Uh, one of my friends back in Australia married to uh, a man from East Asia, uh, and they had a pretty tough journey. Uh, it took him over a year to get his visa in Australia, uh, when he arrived, it was very difficult for him to find work. Uh, he failed his driving test there five times before he was successful. He was fervent in his faith back home in his home country. But when the trial set in as he came to Australia, he started to have all these doubts about God's promises. Now, maybe the Bible isn't true. Maybe God doesn't answer prayers. Maybe I should give up on the Christian faith. Maybe God isn't that trustworthy after all. And so the question comes to us this morning, will we be faithful to the end? Will we trust God through whatever situation he takes us, whether life is easy or whether it is difficult? Or will we start well only to give up on God's promises halfway and not make it to the end? Well, today we'll be reminded of God's promises to his people, God's provision for his people, and God's preservation of his people to the end. And we'll be reminded, not just to begin the Christian life well, but to end it well as well. Well, in Genesis 46 to 47, we come to the end of Jacob's life. He's gone through a rough life. Remember, he was forced to flee from his brother Esau. He was deceived by Laban. Uh, and then he, had to, he was sent into deep grief. Uh, thinking that his favorite son, Joseph, was dead. But last week we saw that uh, the tables were turned. Uh, Joseph was, in fact, alive. 
Uh, and God had made Joseph second in Egypt. And God used Joseph not only to save uh, the Egyptians, but to save his own family from a terrible famine. And it all ended with a, a rather happy reunion. Tears of joy as the brothers were reunited. And the brothers returned to Jacob to tell him that actually his, his son is alive. And Jacob decides to, to go to Egypt and to meet Jacob before he dies. So let's begin with chapter 46. And the first point this morning, God will be faithful to his promises, even in Egypt. God will be faithful to his promises, even in Egypt. Look at verse 1. So Israel, that's another name for Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now Beersheba is right on the edge of the promised land. It's also the place where God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 21 and to Isaac in Genesis 26. And so before Jacob leaves the land, the promised land, he seeks God at Beersheba. Now, going to Egypt was a big deal for Jacob. Now, Jacob's not emigrating you know, in search of greener pastures or something like that, like uh, many Malaysians do. Uh, 47 verse 9 tells us that Jacob is actually 130 years old. I mean, can you imagine an old man taking all that he has to move to another country, all his family, all his possessions, all he's ever known? It would be very difficult for anyone, but especially for Jacob after all that he's gone through, you know, having to flee already from the land once and only after many years coming home. But more than that, God, of course, had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob himself that he would multiply his descendants and bring them into the land of Canaan. Now, Egypt had been a place of danger for Abraham. Remember when he took his wife Sarah down there during a famine in Genesis 12? It ended rather badly. And Jacob's own father, Isaac, had been forbidden by God to go to Egypt during a famine in Genesis 26. So everything here is saying that going to Egypt is a bad idea. It might threaten the promises of God. It might risk all that God has given to Jacob. But Jacob doesn't play it safe here, does he? Valuing his comfort and his possessions over his love for God. Jacob looks to God in faith. He prayerfully seeks his will. He goes to Beersheba and seeks God's mind. And that should be our first instinct too, isn't it? To seek God's will in the big decisions of life. To value his promises. And so turn to him in prayerful dependence that we might live in his will. Well, God responds by reaffirming his promises in verses 2 to 4. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So God reassures Jacob. He reminds him that he is the God of his father. He is the covenant-making God who always keeps his promises. And he says, don't be afraid. Going to Egypt's not going to derail my promises. 
It will be in Egypt itself that I'm going to make you into a great nation and keep my promises. Even in Egypt, I'm going to be with you. Just as I was with you when you ran away from Esau. Just as I was with you when you ran away from Laban. You'll make it to Egypt. You'll see your son with your own eyes. You'll die a peaceful death in his arms. And Israel will come out one day and come home. God reassures Jacob. He will keep his promises. And having heard God's promises, Jacob trusts and obeys. God's word for him is enough. Off he goes. Verse 5. Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob and their father, their little ones, their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock, their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So Jacob goes to Egypt and he takes everything, doesn't he? His animals, his possessions, and his family. And you notice how he gets there. Verse 5 says he's carried there by his sons on these wagons. He's too weak to walk himself, but he still trusts God's promise. No wonder Jacob has already experienced God's promise when he was living outside of the land the last time. And here in this great description of his family and his possessions and so on, we see even more evidence of God keeping his promises. God has blessed Jacob, just like he promised. God has been with Jacob, just like he promised. He ran from Esau with nothing. And now look at all that he possesses. In fact, in verses 8 to 27, the writer uh, underlines God's faithfulness to his promises with this long list of Jacob's family. It's divided up according to his wives, as you can see. 33 descendants of Leah, verses 8 to 15. I won't read all the names. 16 descendants of Zilpah, who was Leah's maid, in verses 16 to 18. 14 descendants of Rachel, in verses 19 to 22, his second wife. And 7 descendants of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, in verses 23 to 25. Now, of course, the division uh, in, in these, into these four sets reminds us uh, of all the conflict between Jacob and his, his wives. The so 14 years of hard work to marry Leah and Rachel. Uh, the competition that uh, was between them as they even gave their, their, their maids to marry him so that they could have more children and outdo one another. But adding all the sons together, as the author does, we're told in verse 27, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Well, those with good maths, you already worked that out. Now that, by any account, is a huge family. Uh, during Chinese New Year, usually we have a, a big family gatherings. My father-in-law is one of 13, my mother-in-law is one of nine. So usually our family gatherings are big, uh, not this year. But this is a huge family, isn't it? 70 people. Do you imagine trying to squeeze them all into the Chinese New Year family picture? But it's not just that, because 70 is a significant number in the Bible. It's the number of completion. Here we have the whole of Israel, whole of God's people, going to Egypt. And once again, despite all the trouble in Jacob's life, we're meant to see God sovereignly keeping his promises through it all. God has indeed multiplied Jacob's family 
God has indeed blessed him, just as he said he would. And so God affirms in this chapter, just as he's kept his promises so far, he'll continue to be faithful to his, to his promises, even in Egypt. He'll be with him. He'll bring it to pass. Well, what do we make of this this morning for ourselves? God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of course, will ultimately be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. As God blesses all the nations for giving their sins through Jesus' death, and so brings this great multitude from all the nations around God's throne in heaven. And so, like Jacob, God has promised us a promised land, uh, heaven itself. And like Jacob, God assures us he'll be with us always to the end of the age, Matthew 28. Like Jacob, we're often taken on a very uncomfortable and unexpected route as we sojourn in this world, waiting for God to bring us home. And as we'll see in a moment, in this world, like Israel, we may well be despised and persecuted as we wait for the final fulfillment of God's promises. But like Israel, like Jacob, we have God's promises. He will be with us. He will get us there. And we can see through all of biblical history, and especially in the light of the cross, the faithfulness of God to us in the past, which assures us of his faithfulness in the future. Well, that brings us to our second point this morning. God provides for his people through his saviour, King. God provides for his people through his saviour, King. And we see in uh, chapter 46, verses 28 to 47, 6, or 47, 12, that it's, it's actually through Joseph, uh, the saviour king figure, that God is going to ensure his promises continue. Uh, and it all centres around Joseph getting the land of Goshen for his people to settle in. Uh, in verse 28, we're told it's Judah, uh, the brother, who leads the way into Goshen, uh, if you remember, it was him who sold Joseph as a slave, but now he's the one arranging the reunion. It's a, it's a wonderful reminder of how God changes lives. When Joseph hears his father has arrived, he races to his chariot for an emotional reunion. Uh, it's a reminder of who Joseph is as he comes in his chariot, the second highest ruler in Egypt, surpassed only by Pharaoh himself. And he was the ruler of Egypt, of course, because he was the saviour of Egypt, the one who had saved Egypt from the famine. And so Jacob comes face to face with God's saviour, King. And as Joseph meets his father, in verse 29, the tears of sorrow from the past now become tears of joy. Father and son reunited. It's a beautiful picture of God's care for his people. But having seen his son alive, Jacob is now ready to die in peace. He says in verse 30, Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. It's interesting, isn't it? When Jacob sees Joseph, his son, he can now face death with confidence at peace. God promised uh, in verse 4, that Joseph himself would close his eyes. And now as Jacob beholds him, he's ready to go. 
I think we're meant to see in Joseph here a picture of the Lord Jesus, God's ultimate saviour king. Uh, in Luke 2, uh, we see Simeon use very similar words to Jacob when he meets God's saviour king, Jesus. And but like Jacob, Simeon had been promised that he wouldn't see death until he beheld the Lord's Messiah. And when Jesus is brought to Simeon in the temple, uh, do you remember what he said? Verse, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And, and so Simeon sees Jesus, the ultimate saviour king. He's ready to die in peace, just like Jacob. As we know Jesus, we can die in perfect joy and peace. Jacob seemed to, uh, as Jacob, uh, so Joseph seemed to be dead to Jacob. Now he sees him alive. So Jesus dies, but now he lives. And so Jesus, the Saviour King, is our assurance that there is hope past death. We can face death with peace. Well, in verses 31 to 34, Joseph comes up with a plan so that Israel will settle in Goshen. No less than seven times does he mention that they need to settle in Goshen. Goshen was the far north of the country of Egypt. It was very far from the capital, and uh, later on in this chapter 47, we're told a few times, it is the best part of the land. In Goshen, they won't be tempted to assimilate with the Egyptians. They won't be tempted to marry their, uh, marry into, intermarry with them or take on their religion. In Goshen, in other words, they'll be safe uh, to be fruitful and multiply, and God's promises will be preserved. And so in verse 32, Joseph explains his plan. They will tell Pharaoh that they're shepherds, and he instructs his brothers to tell Pharaoh that they're shepherds too. Now verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph knows that the Egyptians hate shepherds. And so Pharaoh will happily let them stay up in Goshen, uh, far away from the rest. They'll get the best part of the land. They won't mix with the Egyptians. And in chapter 47, we see the plan works. And verse 1, Joseph tells Pharaoh his family has arrived in Goshen. He's kind of craftily planting the idea in Pharaoh's mind before they even ask. And then in verse 2, Joseph handpicks five of his brothers. I don't know, are they the most good-looking or whatever? I don't know. And brings them in. And uh, as expected in verse 3, Pharaoh asks them, what's your occupation? And they, verse 3, they follow the script. They tell Pharaoh they're shepherds. And in verse 4, they request the land of Goshen. And in verse 5, Pharaoh agrees. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So Pharaoh grants the very best part of the land. And he even makes them the keepers of his own flocks too. 
You see, God uses the wisdom of Joseph to provide for his people. And God is good. He provides for his people all that they need so that they can remain his holy people, so that his promises will be preserved. It doesn't mean that they will always prosper. In fact, there's a little hint of what's going to happen, isn't it? They're going to be despised by the Egyptians. But it does assure us God is working all things for the good of his people, bringing about his promises. And we're also reminded here, God's people are meant to be holy and distinct. They're meant to be different from the world around them. And we're not to intermarry or take on the gods of those around us, uh, whether that's you know, literal idols or uh, money or career or whatever it may be. God provides for his people so that we can remain different to the world around us. And Goshen here is a, is a small little picture, a foretaste, if you like, of the promised land. Verse 6, it's the best part of the land. If you like, it's God's down payment. It's his, his deposit, uh, assuring that he's going to make good on all the rest of the promises as well. I guess much like the Holy Spirit, where we're told in Ephesians 1 verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So God gives his promises in chapter 46. Uh, he assures he'll be with his people. And through his saviour king here, we see God providing for his people all that they need so that his promises will be preserved. They can continue as his holy people. Well, in verses 7 to 10, Joseph brings Jacob in before Pharaoh. Here he is standing before the most powerful person in the world. He's old. Uh, verse 9 says he's 130 years old. Now, we think that's old, but Jacob says it's much shorter than his father's before him. He can hardly walk, remember. But you notice, before Pharaoh, he, he doesn't sit down. He doesn't bow before Pharaoh. Verse 7 says he stands before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh doesn't bless Jacob. Twice we're told. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Verse 7, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob, the greater, blesses Pharaoh, the lesser, even though he is the king of Egypt. Remember Genesis 12. God had promised Abraham not only to bless him, but to bless those who blessed him, to bless all the nations through him, and as, God, as Jacob blesses Pharaoh, we see God keeping that promise too. And once again, the agent of God's blessing is Joseph. Verse 11, we're told Joseph settled his father, his brothers, he gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, all his father's household with food, according to the number of their descendants. Do you see the point here? God provides for his people through his saviour king. God provides for his people through his saviour king. And, and more than that, he does it even in Egypt. Joseph arranges for his people to be set apart in Goshen. And we're given a hint of what's going to happen. They're going to be despised. They're going to be an abomination. 
so much so that the later Egyptian pharaoh is going to submit them to bitter slavery as they multiply so greatly. But even in Egypt, God is still keeping his promises through his saviour king. Well, how does this relate to us this morning? Well, like Israel, we haven't arrived in our promised land yet, have we? We're still living in this world as God's distinct people. We are to be different to the people around us in how we speak and how we work and, uh, and so on. And that means in this world we are very often going to suffer, just like the Egyptians would later despise the Israelites. And yet these chapters assure us God will continue to preserve his people, provide for his people, through his Saviour King. And even though we may have to suffer in this world away from our true home, God is still on the throne, keeping his promises, blessing his people. And that brings us to the final point for today. God can be trusted to the end. God can be trusted to the end. So we've just seen in verses 11 and 12 God's abundant provision for his people. They all have food to eat. But now in verses 13 to 26, that is contrasted with the situation of the Egyptians. Look at verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was so severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And in verses 14 to 27, we see Joseph take everything from the Egyptians uh, for Pharaoh. Three times they plead uh, for food. Uh, the first time they, they, they spend all their money to buy food from, from Joseph, that's verse 14. Uh, the second time, uh, when the food runs out again, this time they sell all their livestock in exchange for the food, that's verse 15 to 17. And then it runs out again, and the third time, this time, they sell themselves and their land, and they become slaves, verses 16 to 18. But Israel has got nothing to worry about. They've got plenty of food to eat. They're abundantly provided for, and they're living freely. It's a vindication of God's faithfulness, that God could be trusted even in Egypt, even during a, a bitter famine. When the citizens of the land themselves are selling themselves as slaves, God's people are free. It's a dramatic reversal, isn't it? Remember, Joseph comes to Egypt as a slave with nothing, but now he's free and blessed. And the Egyptians started as free and blessed, and now they are slaves with nothing. Now, at first sight, we might think, I guess, Joseph is being a bit cruel. Uh, but we're actually meant to see here that Joseph saves their lives. Twice the Egyptians cry out, isn't it? Verse 15, why should we die? Verse 19, why should we die? And once Joseph provides for them, they cry out in verse 25, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. How does this relate to us this morning? Well, just as the nations received their lives through Joseph, so indeed, all the nations who come to Christ save their lives. And when they do, the right response is to offer themselves in joyful, willing service, save to serve. But there's something deeper going on here, I think. And that is the author, once again, wants to underline that God is keeping his promises 
God uses Joseph to take all the blessings of Egypt and give it to Pharaoh. Remember just a few verses earlier, Jacob had blessed Pharaoh. And now Pharaoh is blessed. This blessing comes to pass. In the end, God's people end up with everything richly provided for by God. The Egyptians end up with nothing. And that in itself anticipates what's going to happen in Exodus when God saves his people and they plunder the Egyptians. Well, as chapter 47 closes, we have a final statement of God's faithfulness to Jacob to the end. Look at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. What we see here is that God has been faithful to Jacob from beginning to end. He made promises about Jacob even before he was born. He's been with him throughout his whole life. And now he's kept his promises to the very end. He's multiplied it. He's blessed him, just as he promised to Abraham. And mirroring this, the passage closes with Jacob's faith in God's promise to the very end. God is faithful to Jacob to the end, and God keeps Jacob faithful to the end. Have a look at verse 29. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I've found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. Let me, die with my, let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. God has blessed Jacob in Egypt. And yet Jacob still pins his hopes on the promised land. He still believes God's promise all the way to the end, which is why he begs Joseph to bury him at home in Canaan. Jacob knows Egypt's not despite his true home. He's heading to the promised land. He's experienced the faithfulness of God, and God keeps him firm in faith to the end. Well, let's uh, conclude then. Uh, we begin by asking, will God truly be faithful to his promises? Can we really trust that he will keep his promises to us, even when we face many trials and difficulties in this world? And uh, I hope you can see Genesis 46 to 47 teaches us. The answer is a resounding yes. God can be trusted to the end. For just as God was faithful to Jacob, God has been faithful to us. Just as God uses his saviour, King Joseph, to provide for his people, so God is providing for us through his saviour, King Jesus. Just as God was keeping his promises to Israel, even as they sojourned in a foreign land, so God is keeping his promises to us, even as we live in this world, away from our true home. Just as God is faithful to his people, even though they're going to be despised and oppressed by the Egyptians, so God will be faithful to us, even as we're despised and suffer in this world. And just as God remembers his promises 
And he does bring them out of Egypt back to the promised land so we can be assured God will keep his promises to us. He will bring us home. Yes, life may not go as we hope or as we plan. Yes, we may be sojourners in this world and sometimes suffer greatly. But it doesn't mean God has forgotten his promises or stopped being faithful to his people. Genesis 46 to 47 teaches us, whatever God, wherever God may take us, whatever situation he may put us in, God will always keep his promises through Jesus Christ. And because God is faithful to the end, well, he preserves his people in faith to the end. There are many great statements of that great doctrine of perseverance of the saints in the New Testament. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. John 6.39, this is the will of him who sent me. I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. I think perhaps my favorite, 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24 it's a prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And I don't know this morning what the tests or the trials you are going to have to face in your life in this world as you wait for God's promises to be fully fulfilled. Uh, unlike my friend, you probably won't have to worry about getting a visa or finding work uh, or getting your driver's license, though some of us may be. But you may have to go through a painful relationship breakup. You may lose a child. You may have to grieve the loss of a precious loved one. You may get a dreadful diagnosis. You may have to struggle through anxiety or depression for a long time. You may suffer bitter loneliness. You may be slandered, betrayed, abandoned by people. You may be persecuted by your, for your faith. But this passage assures us, wherever God may take you, whatever situation he puts you in, he's still the faithful God. He always keeps his promises to the end. And so he can be trusted no matter what path he takes us, no matter what situation he puts us in. And so we can live in a firm trust in God's promises all the way to the end. It's not how you begin that matters. It's how you end that counts. It's not how you begin that matters. It's how you end that counts. So will you go on trusting the faithful God to the end? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning that you are the faithful God who always keeps his promises to the very end, no matter where you may take us, no matter what situation you put us in. We thank you for demonstrating your faithfulness, not only in the lives of Jacob and Joseph so many years ago, 
but ultimately through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray. Keep each one of us trusting in your promises to the end until you bring us home to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.